Hello, dudes, dudettes, duders, and everything in between. Welcome to the Hollywood Fishbowl. I am your host, Jesse Kester. Today's guest is Kathy Fong Yoneda. She is an author, a script consultant. She's been an executive at major networks for years. Uh, she's a seminar leader, a workshop leader, and I don't like either of the terms seminar leader or workshop leader because I feel like two words are clumsy for that. So I'm going to call her a seminarizer and a workshopificator. Those are those are her jobs. Also, Kathy is is an all around mensch. And yes, I looked it up. Uh, women can be menches too, not just because it's 2018 and we're all woke, but because mensch just means human being. Uh, and th- and she is. <laughs> well, you, you heard it here first. Our, our guest is 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 a human being, and we're gonna get into that in a little bit. But first, I wanted to uh, do a quick plug. This episode of the Hollywood Fishbowl is brought to you by the Hollywood Fishbowl. And the best thing you can do for the Hollywood Fishbowl, uh, since there's no subscription fee, there's no money involved, what you could do if you wanted to support us is swing on over to iTunes, leave a big fat five-star review. That would make our hearts swim. But good Lord, if you went ahead and wrote a, a, a nice paragraph about how much you like this program, well, we'd just be over the moon at that point and we'd be forced, nay, compelled to read that positive glowing review on the air in future episodes. So, you know, just Go, go ahead and do that. Go ahead and do that. Because uh, without our good sponsor, the Hollywood Fishbowl, it would be impossible to run the Hollywood Fishbowl. So we do ask that you go and support our sponsor. Let's talk about Kathy for a minute. Kathy is no longer in L.A. She's retired to Fresno. Now, Fresno is a three and a half hour drive out from here. So if I look a little beat in the video, if I sound a little beat in the audio, it's because my friend's I'm a little beat. The drive out there, we did it all in one day. I drove out in the morning, did two interviews in Fresno, uh, Kathy and her friend Sonia. Sonia will be uh, airing at a later date and look forward to that one because it is very good. And then I drove the three and a half hours back. So it was a full day. It was over. It was it was an eight hour day of driving plus the two interviews. So I'm still a little worn down. That's also why the episode is later than usual. Uh, but but the drive through the desert, the the drive in the morning, I swear it was three straight hours of grinning cheek to cheek on the way out there. I just love driving through the desert, and this trip out to Fresno was stunning. Drive home in the middle of the night, three hours of grinning. I was it was such such a, a great experience to go out to to Kathy's house to meet Dennis, her husband, and to get a tour of their gardens. And I imagine that they they might say that a tour of their gardens sounds a little uh, a little overblown. But technically, y'all did have two gardens. There was the Japanese garden and the Chinese garden, and you showed them both to me. So we're calling it a tour of the gardens. Now, there was one thing, not one thing, there were many, many, many things that were special about this interview, but there was one thing that was particularly special and particularly meaningful to me in this in this whole trip out there and trip back. The, let's back up a little. Let's take a look at the fishbowl, which is brought to you by the fishbowl, and let's, let's look at the macro instead of the micro. So the, the first four were on background extraing, and that was, that was a decent miniseries. I really enjoyed that one, and it kind of kicked things off. It set the tone for this whole program. The second... The second capsule was uh, four episodes on burlesque, and our numbers uh, went up a lot. Apparently, burlesque is a hot topic. It's highly searchable. It's got a very visual component to go along with the intellectual component that we explored on air, so there's uh, good good content for the social media, lots of sharing, lots of uh, liking, lots of following from, from burlesque. 
And then we do something a little more heady, a little more grounded, this storytelling series. It's not, it's not so uh, whiz-bang fireworky. It's more something to think about while you're driving or, you know, just a little food for thought, I guess the expression is. Anyway, our, our metrics didn't plummet, but we definitely saw a, a plateau in growth from burlesque to storytelling. We didn't grow as much in the storytelling uh, series as we did in the burlesque series. So I start to look at the whole project and I wonder if this, you know, the kind of uh, this, this general interest I have in general things generally is uh, to the detriment of the podcast. If it's going to end up hurting us more than helping us, it's it's kind of where my heart is headed. I'm not saying this is where I'll be in 30 years, but this is where my heart is headed these days. And it seems to be a really good fit for uh, for the the life I'm living out here in LA. But the the numbers were were not really bearing that out. That that we had stumbled on something that was that was uh, a a good a good build, a good product. And that maybe it would have been wise to stick to one topic specifically, like do a podcast on burlesque or do a podcast on script analysis or, or try to try to hone it a little more and focus it over, from episode to episode a little more than we've done. Anyway, this was this was heavy on my mind driving out to Fresno. This has been heavy on my mind through the whole storytelling series, which we're wrapping up today. Um Anyway, I chat with with Kathy, and and you'll hear this throughout the conversation. And it really is it you'll you'll see how how thoroughly it integrates into her her worldview and her life experience. Kathy has also been uh, blessed with the curse of general interest in general everything generally. You'll hear her talk about that more in her own words, and it seemed to pay pay dividends for her creatively, professionally, socially, spiritually, intellectually, it, it seemed to, to, to work out. So it was, it was really good to have this conversation at this juncture as we're coming to the end of the storytelling series and, and I'm looking at the metrics. It was good to have this conversation and to have like a, a, renewed, a renewed bit of momentum that I wasn't expecting. And it, it was momentum that I wasn't expecting to lose either. I didn't see it coming. But to, to lose the momentum and then to get some of it back uh, really, really meant a lot. So I want to say a sincere thank you to you, Kathy, for, for coming on, for living the, the life that you lived and for sharing it with us. Uh, I, I hope that it's as meaningful and, and inspirational for our audience as it was for me. And that's a pretty high bar to clear, knowing that that these ideas hit right in the moment that they needed to hit. The, these new paradigms—they were really—they were—they were, I, I, they were, they were uh, being exposed to me right when I was most hungry for them. So thank you so much. And without any further ado, I give to you, Kathy Fong Yoneda. Drops. Morpheus, Morpheus is, is fighting, fighting Neo. Neo. Nailed it. Welcome <laughs> to the Hollywood Fishbowl. I am your host, Jesse Kester. And today I am joined by the one, the only, the illustrious Kathy Fongianetta. Welcome to the party. It's so good to have you on. The music is about to burn down. You, you don't have headphones on, so you don't know what, what blasting noises in my headphones. <laughs> I'll imagine it. <laughs> dance, 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 and. Morpheus is done fighting Neo. Oh, okay. So how are you? Did Neo win? Ne uh, <laughs> it, it's it's not whether he wins or loses. It's, 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 
It's how it's, it's how, how he grows. Yes. Um, how we like to start this program off is uh, we do a five and five. So I'm going to ask you five questions, and you'll have about one minute to answer each question. And we just burn through some of the kind of simpler questions as quick as possible. Okay. Um, and you're going to hear some beeping, and that is that'll be the countdown to the end of your your minute. We good? Okay. Let's see what happens. Um, that's loud enough. We can hear it. <laughs> First question is, where where did you grow up and how did that inform your adulthood? I was born and raised in Sacramento, California, and I have lived my whole entire life in California. Uh, living in Sacramento is very much like it was for the, for the heroine in Lady Bird. So if you've ever seen that movie, it gives you a good idea. It's like a pretty conservative town. Uh, and certainly when I was growing up many, many, many years ago, uh, there was not the kind of emphasis on film and television and the media as there is now. You got an, uh, 20 seconds oh. on the clock. You can keep going. Oh, okay. Uh, I think the closest thing to it is that when I was growing up, one of the things I was always fascinated is that I always asked questions, which made me a really good journalist. My dad always remembered that um, I was, uh, he says, I, I'm sure your first words out of your mouth are mama or dad, dad, but all I can remember is, how come daddy? Why daddy? <laughs> so I was always there with questions. We'll get back to all that. I've got follow-up questions for that one. Mm. Uh, question number two, what is the must-engage media, the book, the movie, the album that some that everyone should listen to before they die? Oh, goodness. Jeez, <laughs> um, that is really a difficult question because it's it's one of those things, I guess. And it can be for you. But what's your favorite thing, I guess, is the, the gentle way to ask that. Well, I think what I, I if, if when it comes to music, mm -hmm. I have to say I love the Beatles music, and it, it's it is evocative of the time period that I grew up in. I love the fact that no two songs are alike. Mm -hmm. Every dang album is different from the oh, next yeah, one. Each one is a full blown concept album. Mm -hmm. Which is your Revolver, Sgt. Pepper? Where do, where do you land on all of it? It's, uh, it's the one that. The one with Norwegian Woods. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You're doing fine so far. We've got three more questions. Okay. <laughs> Number three, what, what is your purest joy? What, what makes your heart swim the most in this world? I think, well, being married to my husband is one. And I think uh, I just, I happen to have three of the most wonderful sisters in the world. And I really cherish... Uh, my friends and family. That, that's the, the most important thing to me in my life. How long have you been married? 44 years. Holy moly, congratulations. <laughs> Thank <That's>, you. <laughs> how, I, I have many, uh, as, as a, not five, five years I've been married, I do have questions about <laughs> longevity and, and how, how you invest in that. Uh, or but, is this going to be in the interview or do you want this for another, uh, another would, session? <laughs> We might, we might touch on it. We might touch on it. Um, and kids? No kids. We okay. have cats, though. Okay. Cleo and Minx. I have to mention them. Cleo and Minx. Shout out. Uh, mm -hmm. Next question. What gets under your skin? Oh, we already covered that. <laughs> Just, what, what could it possibly be? What, what's... 
what gets under my skin is and let's is see how diplomatically we, we can yes we can um, do this one is uh when when the political climate gets to the point where uh people accept lies or accept untruths and throw blame on everything else for the mistakes or the errors that they make lack of accountability lack of people taking responsibility that, oh yeah. yeah we can go on and on <laughs> yeah i'm right there with you on all of those and um i think it will be an exercise we do later on in the program is how diplomatically we can talk about these these things <laughs> Because I've got, oh, I've got opinions. Oh, well, that's good. Everybody should have opinions. You're doing fine. We got one more question. Are you ready? Okay. Uh, what is the last question? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> advice for beginners. What's, what's the, what's, uh, for people who are trying to break into film, break into writing, what's, what, what do they need to know? That it doesn't happen overnight and that you shouldn't be so hard on yourself. Uh, you have to make mistakes. And if people think that everything is perfect the way it's written or perfect the way that they've done it, they're in for a big shock. You have to make mistakes because that's the way you prog uh, progress and move forward. So that's the best advice that I can give people. Now, a uh, follow-up question. What if you don't want to be patient? Then maybe this isn't the industry for you. <laughs> Rats. <laughs> There's no shortcut around learning patience. There, well, you know what? There's no shortcut to success. You know, I, I do understand that sometimes, you know, people are born into a, a, a family that is already successful or something. And maybe that's that's the way to do it. But heck, none of us are. <laughs> a majority of us are not born into a family where you have success laying there at your feet or it's yeah. inherited. Well. I might, can I disagree with you a little bit, just a little bit on that? Mm -hmm. I think the problem with being born into it is that it, you're blind to what you've been blessed with from birth. There are, there are legs up on competitions that I was unaware of until I became uh, intellectually and romantically entwined with uh, Kenyan. And I saw the world through her eyes and I've seen mm. her home country and realized that I I couldn't know what I was born into because I was born into it. It was oh, apparently something dinged. Uh, but so I think everybody has colossal advantages that they're just simply unaware. Is that possible? Or am I way off the mark? No, I, I do understand what you're saying, though. I mean, uh, we're as we go through life, that's that's one of the things is that I love being able to meet different people and listening to what they have to say or what their background is or what where some of their trials and tribulations are. I think it's important that we uh, realize that there's not just one way to live a life. Mm -hmm. And that's the important thing is that we all have to learn through our mistakes. You have to make mistakes in order to have progress yeah. in your life. Now, did you start in journalism or? Well, that was, that was, uh, I mean, I, I, I have loved journalism since I was in junior high and high school, and, and I was on the school paper. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was in college, my major was, was uh, art and journalism. Okay. Did you break any big stories in high school? 
<laughs> You'll laugh when I tell you. Oh, you did? Okay. okay the biggest thing <laughs> is that um, uh, we, I was part of C.K. McClatchy High. Mm-hmm. Shout out to everybody there in Sacramento. And uh, they had a, a little place called the Lion's Den because that was our, our mascot was a lion. And the Lion's Den was a place where they sold food for lunch, but only guys went in there. It was just the guys who went in there because it was right next to the the men's or the boys' gym. Yeah. And so uh, I just asked my journalism teacher, I said, I'd like to do something on the Lion's Den, and I'd like to go in there and interview people and find out what's going on in the Lion's Den. And he just looked at me and he said, okay, go for it. And um, so I did. I walked in there and nobody said anything about it. And it turned out uh, it was one of the better articles that I did. And actually, the guys all sort of looked at me funny, like, why is there a girl in here? But I started asking them questions. And when they found out that I was doing an article for the school paper, they all wanted to be interviewed. So So why was it all guys? Was it just that once it's mostly guys, then the girls are going to drift somewhere else and it becomes 100% guys? Or is it was it? All I know is that only guys went in there. And I think it was because it was next to yeah, just, the, 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 the boys' gym. Proximity. But um, I just always wondered, mm-hmm. why is it that I can't go down there and get a hot dog or a hamburger or something if I wanted to? And so it's just that nobody ever tried it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I did. <laughs> so, so you did break something in high school. Yeah, well, I did. <laughs> and then you, you go to college and get in, get you study journalism and art. Mm-hmm. Why? When does the art hit? Like, what, what, what's that impulse? Um, I just have always had an appreciation of, of you know, paintings and statues, and I, I just and and I guess it's it's the history too mm-hmm. behind uh, art. Uh, I loved the stories that that came out of it, and I had some really good teachers, I think, in art, and that's what's sort of stimulated it. A good art teacher in, in high school, junior high school, can change the course of your life. I totally agree. Uh, in fact, a couple of the teachers that I then later had when I went to community college. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shout out to community college. My mother and I both are, are community college <laughs> folk. Well, you know, I, you, well, first of all, I was not allowed to go to a, a four-year college yet, uh, unless I wanted to go straight to Sac High, I mean, Sac, Sacramento uh, State College. Was that your parents? Say, or? Um, I think they just felt that it was better to go to the community college first, and I was mm-hmm. fine with that. And uh, I mean, you're getting a lot more bang for your buck at a mm-hmm. community college. Oh, yeah, yeah. And also, too, because I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. Yeah. And what was interesting is that uh, after two years of community college, I still was not quite sure what I wanted to do. And I was a little rebel. And I ended up moving down to Los Angeles. And I went to California Fashion Institute, which is now FITM, Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising. And I thought, okay, I, I, I kind of wanted to use my artistic skills for things like fabric and designing. And uh, it turned out that it didn't work out that way for me. And I uh, left design school and I had to support myself. So what did I do? I went and got into, uh, I went to the studios, I went to Universal 
and I w- wanted to uh, get a job. And uh, the guy that I was dating at the time told me, well, you know, they uh, they are looking for people. You know, they need secretaries and or assistants or typists and stuff. So why don't you go there? At least you it's a union and you'll get paid more. Yeah. So I did. And I got the job. And only about a month or two later did I find out I was hired because I was Asian. I was the first Asian female hired full time at Universal Studios. Now, was it uh, like a, an affirmative action type hire or was it a, we think you're good at this thing because you're Asian? Um, it was basically a, a, a little bit of both. Maybe. It was affirmative action. I okay, think okay. a lot of it was because I didn't know uh, at the time. But the government, federal government, was upset with the uh, motion picture television industry because less than one-tenth of one percent of their workforce, full-time workforce, were minorities. One-tenth of one percent. If you had said one percent, that would have been a bad number. No, one-tenth of of one percent. Uh, So um, I I got the job as a typist in the typing pool. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I, and I didn't understand at the time. I mean, I, I, I honestly didn't even know any of this until some gal came up to me who was also in the typing pool. And she got very upset and said to me, you know, my girlfriend was supposed to get that job. And I said, why? Why would, why? I think I was hired fair and square. And, and she said, well, you only got it because you're Chinese. So I was a little curious about this, and I went down to to Human Resources and asked the woman who did the interview about this, and she said, "Yes, it's true that that uh, the industry is being hounded about. They need to hire more people." But she said to me, "You were the best candidate by far. You you typed great. You you had wonderful uh, social skills," and she said, "I would have hired you even if I were blindfolded." That. that. <laughs> That's that's what I'm talking about being blind to privilege is <laughs> when it's one tenth of one percent and people are still pissed off that you occupy that much of the spectrum. That's being blind to privilege. You have ninety nine point nine percent of everything. Oh God, I used to walk around the lot and I, I could walk around for almost a whole week and I would it'd be hard for me to find a person of color. <laughs> Except for except for there was one guy in the mailroom and he was African American, and so we used to make a joke about it. How many did you see today? <laughs> I, God bless humor. God bless people who are willing to go down that route. So you start you start as a typist now. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you worked your way up the ladder. You didn't finish as a typist, did you? You want to get into that a little bit? <laughs> sure. Um, I didn't. I still didn't know what I wanted to do even then, but I just needed to have a job. But mm-hmm. I, I became very interested in everything about the industry. I started to learn more, and I think that was, in a way, that job starting at the bottom was a blessing for me because I had to learn everything as I worked my way up. I had to figure things out and how things fit together. Mm -hmm. Once you start doing that, you have a much better understanding of why certain decisions are made, uh, why there are certain policies that a a company might have. This is, and this is, this tells you about something that I always tell people to do. Uh, And that is when you network with people, it really helps to Mm -hmm. start building bridges for you. Uh, the head of this of um, Warner Brothers at the time, 
said that he needed some help because he was chairing this great big uh, charity function for breast cancer. And so it, one of the gal, his secretary asked me, Kathy, can you, you know, can you help me out? Because uh, we need some help stuffing these envelopes and the invitations. So I was doing that. And I noticed, oh, it's a date. I'm not doing anything that, that, that evening. So I said, you know, well, if you need help, I can help that evening. And so uh, they said, well, we need help with the silent auction table. In fact, you know, we need a few more people. So I called up some of my other friends who were also mm-hmm. um, you know, in about the same level that I was, and we we um, we were at the the charity function and helped with the silent auction. And I'll be, it just still bowls me over because it was totally unexpected. About a week later, ten days later, um, Mr. Ashley, the guy who's the head of the studio, called me and he said, "Kathy, first of all, thank you for helping me out. I really appreciate it." He said, "You know, we have a new vice president coming in." And I would like to recommend you for the job as his secretary. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, it paid a lot better and, and everything. And I, uh, I was just like floored. That man, uh, uh, the new, the new vice president coming in, was a man named Richard Shepard. He became my mentor. Of, uh, he had been an agent, and before that, he had been a producer. In fact, he produced one of my all-time favorite movies, which is Breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> so, uh, a so lot it's of a, it's fairly well known. That one. It's, <laughs> it's done the rounds. Yeah. Uh, so I worked for him, mm-hmm. and uh, he he eventually was. Um, I don't know how best to describe this. Okay, what happened is that the head of Warner Brothers, Mr. Ashley, was removed from, he was retiring actually, and someone else came in, and that person wanted to put his own people in. So they moved my boss to become a producer and gave him a a producing um, uh, contract instead. Mm -hmm. What was great is that I learned a lot more because he became a producer again, and one of the first things that uh, he did was uh, Robin and Marion, which is a classic movie which talks about what happened to Robin and Marion when they got older. And it starred Audrey Hepburn and Sean Connery. And they were trying to get sh- uh, they were trying to get Audrey Hepburn out of retirement because she would not do it. She had her two boys, and she was um, uh, I think she was going through a divorce at the time, yeah. and she just didn't, you know, she really wasn't sure she wanted to go back into the whole mm-hmm. thing of doing movies. But because she had had such a wonderful uh, time working with my boss on Breakfast at Tiffany's, then she said, okay, fine, I'll do it. While he was in Spain shooting the movie, all the scripts were piling up that were being <laughs> sent to him from all these different agents and I was bored so I started reading him mm-hmm. and that's uh, when he came back he started picking up one script and I said oh you don't want to read that one it's not very good so he picked up another one I said oh that one's even worse <laughs> he finally said how many of these did you read and I said all of them there's probably about 30 40 scripts mm-hmm. and he just said well do me a favor can you just you know write write a little paragraph about what it's about and and one or two paragraphs about what you like or did not like about it. Mm-hmm. And I did. And 
he's the one that recognized that I really had a very keen eye at being able to discern what was uh, good or bad about the story and how it how stories could be uh, changed. Yep. And uh, it just it was something that I thought, oh, well, I always got A's when I did my book report. So that's what I was using. I was using those skills. So it sounds like a, a mix of uh, being a good person and being a good person. <laughs> I think it's being able to take what skills that you've mm-hmm. got and put them to the best use possible. And in this in this case, I thought, oh, that's easy. I, you know, I've done this before. I've done book reports before. Yeah. Why not? And but it's also knowing that I had an eye for detail. Yeah. And I think that that helped me tremendously. I really relished that. A lot of people like to just go for, okay, here's here's the broad strokes. Yeah, yeah. I always like to get into, well, there's the broad strokes, but what's supporting them? What are the fine details that are going to make those broad strokes really stand out? And so uh, eventually he moved over to Warner Brothers and he... <laughs> He became the head of production, and he says, we're moving over there. And uh, I I negotiated my first deal with him, and that is, I said, okay, how about I agree to go over, and I'll help you train and find somebody who can, um, uh, you know, take my place. What I'd like to do after that is I would like to have 30 days in the story department as an analyst, a story analyst, which is a reader. Yeah. Uh, and it's a union position, and and in order for you to be in that union, you have to work for thirty consecutive days. It's mm-hmm. really hard to get in, and so and even then, after you work those thirty days, you have to go through a series of. They have you read some material, and you have to do uh, uh, coverage and everything yeah. on it. And sometimes people pass, and sometimes they don't. I was very fortunate that I passed my first time, but I've had uh, friends in the union who had to go through like three or four times. And if you don't pass, you got to do another 30 days. And if you don't pass, like you keep doing it from... Well, if they, a lot of times what the studio will do is if you don't pass that first or second time, they just say, that's it. Yeah, it's not Because happening. they can't continue to keep doing that. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I got a question, a quick one about mentors. Like, it seems that you... How do you how do you find one? How do you sort that out? Is it kind of the stars align and you get lucky, or I think that's a large part of it. At least in my case, uh, I wasn't really sure what I was doing at that point. I thought, you know, okay, I guess maybe I'll be a studio secretary forever or something. Yeah. But it turned out that were you happy as a studio secretary? I mean, were you enjoying it? Was it I, if you I, had I, been yeah. that forever? Would you have, would um, you be smiling today still? I don't know. It's hard to say because, you know, my life is so different from yeah. like probably what it would have been. Uh, I I have to say, though, I mean, there, there certainly is a, a lot a lot of enjoyment in being able to be working at a studio and to see a lot of famous people coming in and out and, and all that. But it's still a job. A job yeah. is a job. And it's not always easy to get those jobs. And more importantly, it's not always easy to keep those jobs because everything changes at the top and it mm-hmm. filters down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can lose your job, you can lose your project for things that have nothing to do with exactly. your behavior, your performance. One of the other things I, I should have mentioned is, as a result, is when I moved up to become uh, Richard Shepard's secretary, one of the gals who helped me out, I recommended her. And she got my old job. 
So so you do the 30-day program, and then uh, you're switched over to mostly story consulting at this point? or Well, no, what happened is I, I was a story analyst for uh, many years, and, uh, and I eventually uh, went over to Disney. Mm-hmm. And I went over to Disney because while I was at Universal at that time as a story analyst, one of the gals over there who was a VP was a gal named Jane Rosenthal, who now takes care of Robert De Niro's company. Mm-hmm. And uh, she always liked the work that I did. And uh, she went over to Disney as their new VP. And she called me up and she just said, you know, we need to get a couple of new people over here in the story department. Would you be interested in coming over? Because I think you've got the kind of, um, the kind of, uh, uh, work ethic that they need because they were used to they had a lot of people who were used to just reading things that were very disney-esque yeah (laughs) and the people who were there in charge now were michael eisner and jeffrey katzenberg they were given the opportunity to be able to add on and enhance the disney image so it wasn't just all cartoons yeah and and uh kid stuff They wanted to make it family fair, but they also wanted to have a different division that would also uh, be able to include PG-13 and R-rated material as well. What was the? What was it was the called of? Touchstone. Touchstone. That's what it was. I was <laughs> thinking of the logo at the beginning of Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, it was Touchstone, touchstone. Pictures. Yeah. So um, uh, she asked me to come over there, and I did. And what happened is they got stuck. Jeffrey Katzenberg came over and asked her, you know. Uh, We've had this writer do a rewrite on this script twice, and it just we just can't quite crack it. There's just something here. Uh, we need a fresh pair of eyes, so could you have one of the story analysts take a look at it? So Jane had me do it, and I had never done notes before. <laughs> and I was kind of intimidated by it. I said, oh, my God, I have to do it for these people. But I figured, you know, what the heck. And she said, you know, just look at it this way. Think about, because I had never done notes, I said, what do I do? And she said, well, what would you do if you um, could talk to the writer, if talk to the author? Yeah. What would you say to them about what you liked or didn't like about it and why? And that's what I did. So I did like six, seven pages of notes. And uh, evidently they were pretty good because uh, about you, was this Did it go into production? Is this something that might be known? Uh-huh. Or is, can we know what it is? Or is it... <laughs> <laughs> Can you write it down yeah. and slip me a piece it was, of paper? It was one of the first ones that I did. It was, yeah, it's called Outrageous Fortune. Okay. Yeah, with Bette Miller. Okay. okay. Yeah. So anyway, it was um, it was really interesting because you know, like a week later, uh, Jane Rosenthal says, uh, Jeffrey wants to talk to you, so you need to come over here uh, this afternoon at four o'clock. So I did. And he tossed the script back, my notes, my script back to me. And he says, you know, that's pretty damn good. He says, you know, we want you to start next Monday as an executive. <laughs> so how do you celebrate that? What do you do in that moment? That's not a bad offer. No. You, it, you go out it's for not, the weekend or you just. Uh, well, you know, what we, we, because it was, um, I only had like a weekend. Mm-hmm. I had never been to New York. Mm-hmm. So I just, we celebrated and we. We just took off and went to New York for a couple of days. Okay, at least at least you had the presence of mind to celebrate. That's that's so good. Yeah. So then now you're an executive at 
Disney. Mm-hmm. And I was I was there for several years. Then I, uh, for a while, for about a year and a half, I uh, left Disney and worked for Island Pictures, and I was a VP over there. Uh, but it turned out that it was not exactly, I, I, I thought it would be an opportunity for me to learn uh, another way of how to get a movie made because it was an independent, more of an independent film company. <clears throat> and I thought that it would be something for, uh, for me to learn a lot more about it. But it didn't, it didn't quite work out the way that I thought it would. And so uh, I moved back to Disney and I thought, I'm just as happy being a, s- a story analyst. So I just went back yeah. there as an analyst, not expecting anything else until I went to have uh, uh, lunch with one of my friends who at that point was um, an executive over in the TV animation division. And so she asked uh, she asked me you know, to come back afterwards and, and we were talking and everything. And it turned out the guy who was the head of the TV animation department remembered me Mm-hmm. When he used to go to the creative meetings, and I used to, he used to ask me questions about different writers, and could I recommend some writers, you know, for te- for television? And I would do that, and because I was nice enough to recommend those things and to help him out, he remembered me, and he said, uh, "I I thought you were working for Island Pictures," and I said, "Oh no, I left them," <laughs> and he said, "Well." I want you to work for me. <laughs> so I worked for I worked in TV animation for a couple of years. Well, yeah. Which shows were you on? Oh my god, you would have to love all the Disney things like, you know, there were things like DuckTales and um, you know, uh oh, Little Mermaid, the the TV version yeah, of yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I got I got a I got a passing familiarity with uh-huh. these these uh-huh. Uh, these series. Mhm. Goof Troop. <laughs> that Okay. I'm I'm going on like I'm I'm saying this on wax. A goofy movie is one of the most underrated films <laughs> in the history of cinema. That that thing went under the radar kind of is offensive to me. It's so good. What was I thinking? Now I'm totally derailed. Well, uh, through this through through all these uh, all these projects, are there any that you like stand out as ones that you're really proud of that you feel like you had that your your kind of your DNA your touch was on it and that it was something that was really special to you as you were working on it or looking back? Gosh, that's, that's a hard question. It's, I do, I do think I, uh, I did, I did a good job in trying to get Little Mermaid off because mm-hmm. it was the first really big Disney film that they were allowing to be made into a television weekly cartoon yeah. series. Yeah. And, uh, the, so I think part of it is that because I I, I had such a, a good history with the Disney uh, parent company, and, es- and especially you know growing up with with a lot of the Disney work, I was so familiar with it. And that was one thing is they they kind of wanted to keep part of that, but they also wanted to grow their other division. So I had sort of my feet in both areas, and yeah. uh, I also had more than a nodding acquaintance of uh, animated. Uh, material, so they. I think they appreciated the fact that I had seen a lot of the original Disney animated movies. Yeah. No. Also, that Little Mermaid that was like a, a really important turning point in Disney's in the in the studio story is is that that film. So that's a a, a heck of a, a property to be to be partnered like to be able to have have mm-hmm. your. Have I also your, got your to work on. on uh, 
uh, who killed Roger Rabbit. That's <laughs> that film. I don't have to proselytize for that one. Goofy movie, I, I do, but Who Framed Roger Rabbit? That one is well known to be to be a classic. Did you get to work with like, or meet or talk to uh, like Alan Menken at all? Oh yeah, just very briefly. Okay. But um, actually, the the uh, relationship that I still have nowadays, I uh, whenever I go to Boston, I go to visit um, uh, the guy that that wrote. The, the original book. That's very and cool. And he's um, he's just a, a a very dear friend, and we we always get together. And uh, he's he's the one guy that uh, he enjoyed working with me so much that he actually got me a Jessica Rabbit pin with Swarovski jewels on it. Whoa! <laughs> and I still had that to this day. That's awesome. <laughs> Do you think we can get a photo of that afterwards of you? Okay, I'll ha- yeah, I'll have to look for it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, after, after the program, <laughs> not right now. So the big question that's on my mind: we're, we're doing the series on on storytelling and screenwriting. Is, um, is I think a lot of uh, I, I fancy myself a bit of a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's the whole process of writing, and then there's the whole not secondary, but it, it feels secondary if, if you're writing, the process of, of kind of communicating that and bringing your ideas into an executive room. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted to get your your take, your view on how to, the you know, how to best repackage yourself from writer to pitch man or repackage your writing <laughs> from passion project to possibly uh, develop the developable proper, property. Well, the best piece of advice that I can give you is don't stop with just one script. Okay. The biggest question that they are going to ever ask you Mm -hmm. is what else do you have? Yep, yep, yep. And that's two things that they want to know. They want to know that you are not a one script wonder. Yep. And they want to know that you are somebody who is taking this seriously and that they can count on having um, more and probably maybe even better projects than what you've shown them. This is true not only when you talk to producers or to studio execs, but more importantly to agents or managers because they're the ones that have to do the bulk of the, the selling of you and your material. Okay. And how do you what 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 are the what are the best ways to kind of commit suicide in a in a meeting? <laughs> Whoa. Um, I guess expecting too much. I've done that. What else have you got? <laughs> uh, but you can understand yeah. how that happens when you're walking in. You like as, as the writer who doesn't even have an a- agent or a manager, you're thinking, like, this person has all the answers. And if they just gave me some of the answers, even if you're realistically not going to get any of the answers in that first meeting, you can understand where that, that well, I think comes from. One of the, one of the big mistakes that a lot of writers will make is when they, when they come in with their, you know, into their first meeting. And if, you know, granted most, hopefully maybe I've had a chance to read some of their script or they've pitched most of it to me. And if I find that there might be some, something in the storytelling that doesn't quite quite work and if I bring it up and for them to get very defensive or for them to say but that's the best part or that's but yeah. that's the way it really happened especially if it oh was, that one's the worst that's that's how it really like don't don't hide behind that <laughs> go but that's what really happened or that's what they really said 
And it's sort of, you know, you when you become that defensive about it, and it, it shows that you're so, uh, I guess in a way that, that you are so rigid about mm-hmm. not wanting to be working as a team. Yeah. Because all movies end up being a team effort. Yes. Is, uh, here's the thing. Uh, the, can I, let, let me do the worst thing and uh, <laughs> do exactly what you Go said. Go for it. Just Go don't for it. Do. <laughs> I got this script and the it's about a, a young girl, maybe 11, 12 years old. And at the end of the story, she dies. The whole point of the story is that she dies. And I have had people say, well, why can't she just not die at the end? And my feeling then is, well, then there, that's a different script. We can do a script where the characters don't die at the end. Is there any situation? Like from the ground up, that script was only about this one thing, and that was a, an unfair death in the world. Or should I just... How, how do you navigate that conversation when, when the whole point really is the one thing that they want you to change? How, what, what's a good... Well, you know, it just depends. If, if they are paying you um, uh, to do a rewrite, mm-hmm. try it their way and okay. see what happens because okay. you are being paid. Okay. See, so that is what I, the best advice I could give okay. On, okay. on that Okay, very part. fair on that. And if, it, if they might actually recognize after they see the rewrite that it doesn't really work. Okay. And then... So just keep the conversation moving. Don't don't stonewall mm-hmm. it if you if you possibly can. <laughs> and then, how do you? How what, what are some what are some ways that writers could better understand the studio, the mechanics of the studio, the the internal workings of the studio? So when you write a script, the only restriction is whatever you want to be thinking about at that time that you write it. But when a studio produces a script, they're factoring in uh, a million other things that the writers are never, not never thinking about, but could could have no way to even be aware of it. Mm-hmm. So if you're going into, just, just for example, you're going into a meeting with Disney, it's the late 80s, they're trying to get Touchstone off the ground, you're not aware that Touchstone exists. So you're writing for, you know, Kid Disney, and they want to be developing projects for Touchstone. How do you... How do you engage that dialogue? How do you get to, how, what, what awareness can you have of the studio's mechanics? I think that the important thing is nowadays, especially with social media, uh, there, are, there are things that you, you can uh, look up that mm-hmm. tell you a little bit more about what is being done. Especially if you go to the Hollywood Reporter and Variety, they have those kinds of um, uh, things on their website or if you actually have a paper subscription, because a lot yeah. of people still do. Uh, well, Variety is a fun one to get in paper. That's, it's so beefy. It's so beefy, and it's so full of commercials and ads and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's, it's, you know, I mean, but reading that can mm-hmm. give you a better idea of what the studios are looking for. And also, it, it ranks all the movies for that particular week. Who, who sold the most tickets? Or which TV shows were in the top 10. And it gives you an idea of what people are looking at now. Mm-hmm. And what is it that you could do that might be in that, sort of in that ballpark, but something that's a little bit catchier or a different take on it. Because they don't want you to, because people don't understand that once you see a movie, that movie 
was conceived probably a couple of years before that. It's taken like a year and a half, two years before it gets to the screen. And um, same thing for television. You know, it takes a while before a series actually gets gets made and is up there. So you, you have to really kind of think ahead if you don't, you know, if you don't have anything already written, think about what do I see and what can I do that's going to make it different from that. Here's a very specific question, and you can opt out if you want on this one. But what do you? Th- I, I, we got the bell ready to go. <laughs> what do you think is that juice that is in Billy Wilder's work that makes it feel like it was written yesterday, or even there's something about his films that when I watch them, I, I feel like it's still on the cutting edge of thought and compassion, uh, human complexity. What is that? What is that? He writes the best characters and his dialogue is just spot on um and it's because he he takes everyday people Mm -hmm. you know um it's just one of those things he he's a great observer of life and i do think that that is one thing that uh i think people need to especially writers it's important to to really observe the world. I mean, I think it's great to, I mean, some of the best ri- writers, when you, you know, when I've talked to some of them, they, they say that some of their best things they do is they, they just sit around and they listen to people. They'll sit in a bus station or an airport. Oh, yeah. Or Vegas <laughs> or on a plane. <laughs> I haven't done Vegas yet. Amtrak, the, the trains are great for listening into other conversations. Well, on the subways. Yes, yes. And just listening to what, I mean, that's life. That's real life. And yet there's drama and there's humor on there. And sometimes there's some not so nice things that are happening. But, you know, it's it's being able to observe and absorb what you see around you. And what is it that affects you in such a way that you feel compelled to write about write about that subject and and that particular character that is the one that's responsible for saying the words that you want them to say. And that's what made Billy Wilder so great. And there's really no shortcut to that as far as I can tell. To people watching, like there's no there's no Twitter feed in the universe that will that can supplant going out and sitting at a coffee shop or sitting on an Amtrak and listening in to whatever else is actually happening in, in other people's I uh, maybe it's because I am uh, older, and <laughs> I'm not a millennial. Uh, I, I think that that's one of the things is that speaking skills and dialogue are missing in a lot of the projects that I've been reading, and that's because they allow social media to do their talking, or they just talk very briefly to do their text or something, and yeah. they aren't really listening to what other people are saying when it's one-on-one. And they have to remember that that's what's the important thing is when you're sitting there in a theater or you're sitting on your tele- and watching television or, or even watching your computer while it's streaming, that ha- these are people that are characters that are talking back and forth. You have to be able to write those characters and what they're saying. And you can't just have them being on social media all the time. Yeah, yeah. In fact, that that is a major problem. Uh, I was talking to a couple of people in, in, in HR at the studios as well as uh, some other folks too that uh, work for some high-tech companies. 
And one of the biggest problems they have is that some of the younger people coming up, those that are most, and mostly they're the ones who are under 30 or so, don't have the social verbal skills to be able to really express themselves and to be able to write down what it is that they feel or they want their characters to feel or to say. So <laughs> to be fair, in their defense, when I, I was it it wasn't until I was in my late twenties, early thirties that I feel like I had I mean you, it takes some time to familiarize yourself with emotions and how they how they how they explode out of you and uh, ricochet off of other people and come back. Mm-hmm. So we could cut them a little slack. I'm not saying they're <laughs> off the hook completely, but it does it takes it takes a minute. You you listen to Leonard Cohen, he was doing his best stuff at <laughs> 70, 80. True, true. <laughs> it took a while to get to the to the really good. Not that it was ever bad, it was always good, but let him marinate. Let him marinate a minute. <laughs> Well, it's just that I also think that that um, sometimes the millennials do expect things to happen very quickly. Yeah. And that's not necessarily the way that it's always going to work. Just because we can get information quickly doesn't necessarily mean that mentally, physically, and emotionally that we can absorb all of that and put it out there in a yeah. script or in a novel. Yeah. It's not always that easy. And and you know, you do need a certain amount of I think experience in 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 uh in what you do with your life and what you uh what you see and feel. Uh because that's sort of what helps you helps move you along. Uh I I know that these people in HR just have told me, you know, sometimes it's really hard to have a conversation when they're asking questions and they just answer yes or no. Yeah. And they don't take the time to really discuss a little bit more about uh, some of their, their skills and some of the, you know, the, okay, let's see. Oh, I see you're familiar with the program, you know, and, and they'll say, yes. Instead of saying, yes, I used it to, to um, uh, put together a, you know, a, an article that I used for, such and such, you know, um, you yeah. know, college paper or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's being able to engage the people and not just uh, expect that whatever's listed on your resume is going to do it for you. Yes, I, I'm gonna. Uh, there's a similar thing. If I can complain about these millennial <laughs> children for a minute, and it's not even their fault. It's that as you. I I talk to people 20, 22 years old and ask them if they've ever felt heartbreak and they think they have, but I, they haven't yet. And I can't relate Mm. to somebody whose heart hasn't been, I have trouble relating to people if their heart hasn't been broken, if they haven't felt Mm. like a deep searing pain and every, but that gets complicated because everybody, (laughs) the most pain you've ever felt in your life, you think that's the most pain. At that time, yeah. 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 (laughs) And that's the disconnect I feel mostly Mm. is, and it takes a bit, it takes a minute to to have your heart broken because you have to know who you are and it's hard to know exactly who you are at 20 years old or 22. So you have to know who you are, then you have to give that self to someone else or something else. And then that something else or someone else has to absolutely own it first and then reject it second for it for that 
for for me to uh, for that bridge to be built between does that make any sense or am i off the rails completely no i understand what i i, I think i understand what you're saying it's um i think it's really i i do think it's kind of hard sometimes for for you know when you're young you haven't had that body of experiences yeah. to, to to draw from um but i do think that that there is some kind of a uh, a disconnect in, in in some of the some of the younger people coming up because they have relied so much on things like computers and mm-hmm. and um, social media and uh, and of course in social media it's, everything is very abrupt or everything's limited to a certain amount so yeah, they're yeah, yeah. it's not really being able to explore things yeah. and to really describe things thoroughly. It's hard to do the deep dive in 140 characters. Yeah, <laughs> it's just not going to happen. <laughs> Um, do you want to ding the thing? We can get into the bowl. Oh, okay. Oh, I have to ding yeah. it first? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Our fans wait for that sound effect oh, really? at the edge of their seat. The oh, do you, do you want, here, how's there that? Okay. Do you like that, Selena? What did you get? And you can ask me or you can what answer What are people like back home? What are people like back home? <laughs> Whose is that? Can I see? I might be able to recognize the handwriting. I'm not sure whose that is. But what are people like back home? You mean in Sacramento? All we have is what the card says. Well, <laughs> yeah, right, well right now we're sitting in my home, so that's yeah. why. <laughs> well, my husband's upstairs, but okay. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. I'll answer this for you. People back home seem pretty nice. I enjoyed talking to your husband. <laughs> and I enjoyed talking to you. Um, people in Sacramento, uh, first of all, they are all going bonkers over Ladybird. Mm-hmm. Because it's the first time that the that Sacramento's actually been f- an actual character. It she talks about being in that city, and and I have to say I related very well to that movie because I felt the same way she did. That I that I felt there was a disconnect uh, because everybody there goes into civil service and everything's done a certain way, and it's the capital of the of the state, and so it's really mostly state federal county work and i always knew i was meant to do something that was much more creative i think and so i always felt like i didn't quite belong in sacramento but i have to say since ladybird came out now everybody talks about sacramento and it's funny how some people will suddenly come up to me they hey wait a minute aren't you from sacramento this place is hot now you got cachet well, they are actually doing a, a film commission and, and actually getting more active about, proactive about um, pursuing things. And, and uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a small, it's a smaller town than, uh, you know, Los Angeles or San Francisco or Fresno or whatever. But there is still a sort of a small town atmosphere to it, which I kind of actually like sometimes. Uh, because I I can I feel I can walk around there and everything is just sort of you know the way it, uh, it was sort of when I was you know growing up. Uh, Sacramento, I uh, my sister I have two sisters who still live there, and they are part of my lifeline. My other sister lives in San Francisco, and my sisters are are truly my absolute best friends as well as you know my life. My, Older, younger, how are? I'm the oldest. Okay. Yeah. Did you help raise them? Are you old enough to have uh-huh. been a part of that? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I uh, my sisters are, are the people that I love the most in this world. 
Of course, Jenny's probably upstairs <laughs> saying, what did you say? Yeah, he's got, got a cup to the door right now. No, they're the ones who know me best. Yeah. 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 Good, bad, and indifferently. <laughs> but well, I'm um, going to let it hang. Selena, do you think I love you more or less than Swinky? I'm not answering that question. <laughs> Please continue. <laughs> but um, you, there's there's something to be said about Sacramento. I do appreciate, and I think it, it took a while for me to come to this this point where I do appreciate having grown up there because it's the same kind of uh, thing is that it challenged me that if I didn't agree or I didn't like what was what the way things were mm-hmm. to move and uh, back then to especially for an Asian gal to move out from your family and not going to college or anything you know but just to move out and to go to move to a uh, you know 400 miles 500 miles away uh, that's you know that was kind of not done yeah, normally yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was something that i felt i needed to do and it was a little rough at first i think it, you know like all things i'm i'm sure the same thing for you when you moved to tokyo <laughs> yeah yeah you feel it's it it's just you know it's just like I'm not so sure, did I do the right thing or not? But then you gradually realize, well, wait a minute here. Uh, If I don't start trying to make decisions and and if I make a mistake, fine, learn from it, then I'm not going to move anywhere. You know, I won't progress. I'll just move backwards. And I don't want to, I didn't want to ever do that. And so I, I do think that, you know, the fact that I, had the courage like Ladybird did to just, you know, okay, I'm just going to, I'm just going to move out and I'm going to do what I need to do and find out what the rest of the world is like beyond what my family has, has given me. I think moving to, I just moved to LA half a year ago. That was, so, okay. When I moved to LA, I, I had a career in Tokyo. I have a wife. I had a life, I had income, I had a network, I had a reputation. Uh, When I moved to Japan from America, I had a backpack and I had some underwear and I had some shirts. So I'm feeling it much, much more on this move than when I moved to to Tokyo because it was just out of college. I didn't, who cares? You're invincible at that age. And now now I'm feeling it deeply. Um, Lady Bird. Mm-hmm. I go to Redbox two or three times a week just to rent a uh-huh. video. And every time for the last since they've gotten it, I see it and I think like, oh, that looks like work. I haven't watched it yet. And now I'm deeply, <laughs> deeply regretting my, my poor life decisions. <laughs> so I, I would go with, you know, uh, Iron Man or whatever, whatever <laughs> stupid movie, the, the Thor film. I'm going to dig myself out of this hole I'm digging. Let's see what we got down here. I'm not going to go for one of yours. I'm going to close my eyes and do this fair. Ooh, <laughs> that doesn't sound good. <laughs> this is really complicated. There's some not double negatives, but this is this is a tough one. What? I thought only forty five did double negatives. <laughs> These infinity <laughs> negatives. That one. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> don't even, don't even. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. My man. If you're going to blow it on wood and wooden, maybe you're not ready for prime time. If that's really the story you're going with, it's it, go back to the lab. Do a little more studying. That's not the mistake we make when we're at that level. 
<laughs> that just oh, rubbed me. Because here's the thing. I freaking love words. I love words. And here's why I love words. Because they're free. You don't have to pay a damn thing to use whichever word you want. You can find the absolute best word and it costs the same as the dumbest, stupidest word in the universe. <laughs> what do we got down here? Uh, is there another language or an accent that you can do for us? I don't know who wrote this. I'm imagining it's a uh, uh, performer or actor. Oh. Do you speak is English? English, English is my only language. And Oh, here's a question. Uh, slang from Sacramento when you were growing up. Is there any 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 good slang that that <laughs> that as a as a boy growing up in Pennsylvania I wouldn't know? Not really. Uh, maybe some surfer slang or something like that. That's about it. Here's a more pointed question. So in, in Hollywood movies, there's like the, oh, whoa, dude, gnarly. Do those people exist or was that just like a caricature for film? Uh, well, it still continues because everybody watched Big Wednesday or something, I guess. They watched all those surfer movies for a while. But was that how people really talked back in the day or was it just like? A... They, they did during the 60s, okay. maybe, but... Okay. I really don't hear very many people talking like that now. See, we could go shallow. We could totally just talk <laughs> surfers in the 60s. Why don't you give it a ding? Let's keep burning this thing down. Okay. We're getting questions I've never had before. Oh. Some of these are new. What what weirdo question did you get this time? Ooh. <laughs> Describe, um, I guess it's moment... Where you were obsessed with someone or something? Ooh. We can get on that Keanu Reeves train if you want. Because um, that moment is still going for me. <laughs> no, you know, obsessed with some someone or something. I have to say, I was obsessed with Bruce Lee. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. What, what was the pull? Was it his films? Was it the, the Green Hornet? Like, what was... You know, it, there was just, and um, <laughs> you can, if you look in the mirror over there, yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> the green horn. I, uh, I was obsessed with Bruce Lee right around the time I met my husband. <laughs> 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 and I have a funny story about that. He, uh, the head of international. Uh, distribution uh, for Asia was this gentleman who knew that I liked Bruce Lee. Mm -hmm. And so he was the one responsible for getting Bruce Lee to come over to take care of some stuff for publicity and Enter the Dragon was about ready to come out. So he had Bruce Lee he told him, he's, please do me a favor, there's, there's a young woman here who um, really loves your movies and really is excited and, and she works here. And so he told him, gave him the directions to get to my office and he stuck his head in and said, hi, I'm looking for Kathy. Oh my God. <laughs> and I just looked and I thought, oh my God, am I seeing things or what? And he turned out to be one, a genuinely nice person and, and we just chatted and and uh, he said that 
uh, he had to be, he was going to be doing another um, movie or he was scheduled to do another mm -hmm. movie. So he didn't know if he was going to, he was going to try and be back for the premiere. But, you know, I got an autograph photo of him and everything, which you've seen. Mm -hmm. And uh, a funny thing that came off of that is that I sort of lost my um, obsession, sort of. And that was because uh, I started dating my husband. And <laughs> the funny thing that happened is about after a month or so after we'd been dating, he came to the studio to pick me up for a screening or something. And he saw Bruce Lee's picture on my desk. And it's, you know, he's bare chested and it's a, it's from the scene, you know, and he's going, yeah, he's yeah, doing yeah. his kung fu pros. And, and so, and uh, my husband got, uh, said, why do you have this guy's picture there? You know, I thought we, <laughs> he was getting kind of jealous. And um, there was something kind of endearing, though, about yeah. that, yeah, that yeah, he yeah. did that. And, uh, you know, like they say, you know, um, 40, 40, 45 years later, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> but um, he's the one who got me off the obsession. <laughs> let's do one more and then let's get you out of here. Let's get, get you off the clock. Do you want to pull the last one? No, you go ahead. Okay. Oh, should I try to pick one of yours? <laughs> Is this yours? What villain would you like to be and why? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Ooh. Which villain? Who who would you go for? I got mine. Hmm. Ah, uh, Maleficent. Ooh. Okay. Why? Uh, there's there's a couple of reasons why, uh, for me at least, because I think we now understand that sometimes we just don't know everybody's story behind them mm -hmm. and why they turned out the way they did why was she mean why was she so cruel uh of course you know when you think about it those grim fairy fairy tale people in hans, hans christian anderson and all of them i don't know they probably had some problems too but uh what i liked about maleficent is that i do know people who were who are you know who were like that who were kind of not such nice people and uh uh treated treated their stepkids not very well or whatever mm -hmm. but then i like the fact that uh, and uh, that disney decided well we're going to do a movie about maleficent and how she was misunderstood and so to me that was something that i always kind of thought that there is sometimes more than meets the eye to the villain and maybe if we understood them a little bit better, then maybe we would uh, be a little bit more understanding of why they turned out the way they, they did. Excellent. I, I like that was a, a hell of a pull to go from uh, like to, to choose a villain and then make it an exercise in empathy. Yeah, not well, bad. Not bad at all. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't take that from you. You had such a good answer for the villain and why. I'll tell you off, Mike, but um we're going to close on that one. Is that okay? <laughs> okay. Even if I could, I wouldn't upstage you on that one. And I can't. So I'm going to cue up the goodbye music, which you won't hear because you don't have headphones on. But you, you can imagine it'll be a nice surprise for you, right? Well, thank you for having me. This has been The Hollywood Fishbowl, and I have 
been Jesse Kester. I'll continue to be Jesse Kester. If you liked what you heard, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at HWFishbowl. If you want to see, hear more of us on the internet, go to www.hollywoodfishbowl.com. But it's not about me. It's about our guest, Kathy. Should people be following you on the social medias? Is there somewhere they can find you? Well, you're welcome. Always welcome to um, follow me on www.kathyfongyoneda.com. K-A-T-H-I-E-F-O-N-G-Y-O-N-E-D-A.com. Anywhere else? Are you are you blowing up the Instagram? Nope. Okie dokie. <laughs> And I would I would encourage all of our listeners to keep to do to do the the, the deep dive on Kathy because it, it's I, thank you thank you for sharing your insight thank you for sharing your wisdom and thank you for being who you are we have about ten seconds left of the music and that's why I'm kind of spinning my wheels a little bit right well, now. well thank you very much and good night. <laughs>